A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. A production of iHeartRadio. Hello, welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. My name is Noel. They call me Ben. We are joined, as always, with our super producer, Paul Mission Control Deccans. Most importantly, you are you, you are here, and that makes this the stuff they don't want you to know. Uh, we're pretty excited about this one. Uh, we have been kicking this idea back and forth for a while, and uh, it relates to museums. As you can imagine, uh, being that we're all somewhat on the nerd spectrum, we're all big fans of museums, right? Like, I, I don't know about you guys, but uh, every city that I come across, one of the first things I try to do is find a museum that I've never been to or, or heard of before and then visit it and for my money, the more obscure and regional, the better. You know what I mean? I love that stuff. It's weird. Museums kind of have, I don't know, in this moment, a bad rap. Like it's the touristy thing to do when you're in a city. But I wholeheartedly disagree with that sentiment. And I, I think what you're saying is is very important. You're uh, saying that about museums. Matt, who's saying that about museums? Well, there's this. Yeah, we'll find <laughs> There's this perception <laughs> like, you know, you, you travel to. Uh, a, a new city, even if you're just visiting friends or something, it's like there's a desire, I think, in many of us to to go to a museum. I've just heard the the pushback like, oh, that's the touristy thing. Like, don't do that. 
may, maybe I'm completely wrong. I've heard that sentiment around. Uh, well, it, it does feel like the kind of thing that maybe you don't do in your own town, right? Like we have a hmm. handful of okay museums here in Atlanta, but I've never been to, there's a Holocaust museum uh, and also yes, a civil yeah. rights museum. And I mm-hmm. have been to neither. I've been to the Coca-Cola museum when I was a small child, but not since. Ew. But I do know plenty of people that live in New York City who take advantage of, uh, I believe it's the first Saturday of the month. Um, you get mm-hmm. free museum entry, uh, which is a big deal. And the last time I was in New York, I took advantage of that and went to the Guggenheim for the first time in my life. And I, I loved every minute of it. So maybe it's different if you're in like a cultural mecca like New York. I feel like everyone I know pretty often frequents the museums or even have um, memberships. Yeah, I'm I'm a big fan of the museums in Atlanta, in New York, really I'm I'm just such a pushover when it comes to museums. Like I'm the guy who if I'm walking by someplace in a strange town and it's like JP Higginbottom's comprehensive museum on the history of frying pans, I'm like, all right, well that's the afternoon, you know, I'm canceling things. Uh and it it pays off uh because knowledge is so important. And the idea, the concept of a museum is such a profoundly noble thing. Uh, We would, of course, we'll say this at the end as well, love to hear your stories of strange local museums in your neck of the woods. Uh, Today, we're diving deep into a story that for most of the public is, is probably a new concept. A lot of people are not aware of this. We know that not all museums are created equally. But some have secrets, and that's what today's episode is about. Also, full disclosure, we have some dark stuff coming up that we also think is important, but we wanted to take an opportunity to do a bit of a more lighthearted episode, a a kind of palate cleanser, uh, one that still takes us into conspiratorial waters. So here are the facts. Uh, We... Everybody knows what a museum is. They're very common throughout the world. Uh, But the history of them is very strange, you know, and it's a history that is still referenced today in a lot of ways, Um, perhaps most recently by our colleague Aaron Mankey, uh, who in the creation of his podcast, Cabinet of Curiosities, which is a reference to an antecedent or a predecessor of museums. I'll only take minor credit for that one as I did make the first 100 episodes. <laughs> <laughs> well, we will only give you minor credit then. No, major credit where major credit is due. It's a really cool show. Um, ben, you, you point out something really interesting in the outline here that I never really thought of um, in this exact way. But the idea that museums, at least the modern versions of them, are relatively young and that makes a lot of sense, right? Because you kind of need history to happen before <laughs> bothering <laughs> right. to, uh, you know, um, display it, uh, you know, for people to check out and kind of remember what came before, right? But history's been happening for so long, guys. Since the beginning of history. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we're going to find out. But that that's a really good point because it's kind of like the old, the old adage about how you shouldn't write your autobiography when you're 20 unless a lot of shit has happened. You know, uh, so I love this idea. This is just a spitballing. I'm sure it's not true, but I do love this idea of someone in the ancient past saying, uh, we should make a a museum, uh, I guess, about what's happening now. Mm -hmm. Uh, What what do we, we got fire. That'll be one. uh, I got some vitamins. Uh, Let's do that. (laughs) Sorry. They wouldn't have those. Here's a rock. Mm -hmm. 
It's a it's brown rock. All right. A rock from a rock? Uh, hey. A rock from a rock, uh, which is also, I think we're doing this every episode now. This is, I propose that that could be a candidate for an album name. We just need to figure out the band. Uh, but yeah, you're right. Uh, museums, the modern version is younger than I think many people assume. But the concept, the predecessors of museums are very, very old. So old, in fact, that experts today are not sure where the first museum was located, when it was constructed. Uh, all we know is that it speaks to a primal urge of the human species. Human beings, one thing they have in common is a lot of or gregarious pack rats. You want to collect stuff, right? And then you want to show people stuff. You might not let them take it, but you want them to know that you have it. Yeah. <laughs> Dude, and that, that gets into some weird stuff that we've talked about before with uh, certain countries, especially the United States and other Western countries that just have a huge collection of different things from other countries and other times that they maybe shouldn't have necessarily. And have been giving back, actually. A lot of, a lot of plunder and pillage uh, goes into museum collections oftentimes. It's sort of the dark underbelly of museum culture, I guess. Yeah, I think it was, uh, I want to say the Hellblazer comics. I, I read some great line where John Constantine is talking about museums. And he says, this is where the British Empire set, drew the line and said, we're only giving up so much. So, uh it's it's kind of a cynical thing and it's fictional, but it is a huge, huge ethical issue. And we're going to run into some ethical issues today yeah. as well. Do you guys remember that movie, The Relic? Oh, yeah. I think, yeah. yeah. So if anyone doesn't remember The Relic, I think it was like an early 90s, kind of bad early CGI monster movie that takes place, I believe, at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. But it's almost like uh, here's uh, museum curators getting their comeuppance for taking stuff that doesn't belong to them. Wow. <laughs> All right, well, I, yeah. I need to watch it. <laughs> My goodness. Well, hey, I'm glad we brought up Iraq because that is maybe not the first museum, but it's like the thing that came before a museum, right? Yeah, it's the oldest. Right now, it's considered the oldest known museum-like thing. Uh, it was called the Inagaldia Nanas Museum, and it was built on the orders of a princess, Princess Inagaldi, uh, toward the end of the Neo-Babylonian Empire. So that puts it around 530 BCE. Uh, in less academic terms, that's like 2,500 years ago. So the concept of a museum predates the concept of Jesus Christ. That's how common this urge is in the human species. And I'm actually surprised that we didn't find even earlier collections of things. Uh, but I think yeah. they're out there. Yeah. Just hidden still, maybe. Yeah. Like Gobekli Tepish, you know, like that's the like an ancient, ancient and very mysterious human structure. I don't know if you can call it a temple or a town. It's weird. Uh, but but this is this museum in modern day Iraq uh, was is considered to be like. The first thing, the harbinger of things to come. It's the oldest thing people have found so far. And interestingly enough, this uh, princess's collection, her museum, was itself a history museum. And it, it contained artifacts from earlier Mesopotamian civilizations. And then later, of course, you see a common thread with the well-to-do collecting objects uh, and artifacts that they consider to have social, cultural, or spiritual 
uh, significance, like Romans and Greeks. Their stuff, their collections weren't quite what you would call a modern museum either because they would be inside temples. These artifacts would be in temples or they would be like statues in bathhouses or on estates as a flex. Look at me. I am doing well enough to have statues in my house. Uh, And then uh, they were connected with libraries too. So a library would kind of contain both the concept of a museum and a library. Like you've heard of the uh, Library of Alexandria. There was also a Museum of Alexandria, mm-hmm. neither of which are around today. I mean, a library is kind of like a, a museum of, of ideas in many ways. Ooh, I like that. Museum of mine, beautifully put. Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> this, this takes us like our next broad step is toward something called wonder cabinets or cabinets of curiosity and the the phrase cabinet is misleading because usually they were like a room in someone's house someone's estate or their mansion or the palace or whatever and you could think of these like miniature pop-up museums kind of like the um what is it that museum in new york it's museum with like three or four m's at the front but that that place is literally a little cubby on the street and it's amazing. It's one of the, it, it was one of the best museums I went to in New York for how unique it was. But uh, these cabinets, quote unquote, these rooms, they were flexes. That's what they were. They weren't open to the public, not for the poors and the proles and the peasants. They also represented just like the entirely arbitrary whims of the curators, the people who paid for this stuff. You know, I'm really into ethnobotany or I'm, I guess at that time they would just say botany. And uh, uh, now I collect plants or I'm a lepidopterist. My thing is butterflies. I have a room full of dead butterflies that are pinned to the wall. Nothing creepy. Yeah. And unless, you know, unless there's actual human remains of some sort that were significant, which was a thing. Um, mm. <clears throat> yeah, th- these things are fascinating. If, if you can, you can actually find quite a f- quite a few depictions of cabinet of curiosities that never actually had a photo taken of them. Um, and so, some, some of these rich folks went wild with their cabinets. They were like, a you know, the study of esoterica or maybe the, the dining room of dastardly things that we that me and my friends were able to pay for uh anyway it's just weird stuff yeah it is and it, it was it's strange because in europe at this time when the with the when we see the rise of cabinets of curiosity we see that they were a flex it was like it was like uh having a really nice rolex or a petit philippe or whatever that that other watch is and you would if you remember the upper class you would want people to know that you had these things, that you had this cabinet, and people would generate buzz about it, and they would try to curry social favor by having other members of the elite come see their cabinets and talk about them, or by being lucky enough to snag an invitation to whatever cabinet was hottest in town at that time. This didn't just become a matter of keeping up with the Joneses. If you had a good cabinet of curiosities, it could propel you to higher echelons of society. So this was like, for a lot of these people, yes, it was satisfying their own personal curiosity, 
but it was also like an investment in a very real way. Mm-hmm. We, we've had discussions before off air, I, I think maybe a little bit on air here, about this weird tendency in the upper echelons of society across history of just wanting to hang with people like somebody that you like hanging out with. You just want to spend time with that person, maybe, or if you like someone, you almost want to have them just join your club or be within your club. And I I don't know. There's something to this where the weird stuff that you get to go see at somebody else's house just makes them a part of your thing now. uh, If that makes sense. Uh, So the cabinet was a way in. And this is common in people's homes in the modern day. People are still doing this. You know, you want to show friends your cool stuff and maybe family heirlooms would be a common example. Well, and not only that, I mean, even, you know, some of the grandest museums of today, like the the Louvre or, or the Met in New York, there's something very sacred feeling about them. I mean, the, the architecture and the way the space is laid out and the, you know, um, emphasis on being quiet and respectful. It almost feels like you're in a church in some way. And the idea of maybe having family heirlooms out, I mean, some cultures where there is a certain very, very high reverence uh, towards ancestors, um, these things could be considered shrines, you know, or, uh, or like mini at-home temples. Yeah, I've had uh, I've had shrines before and, and visited them, and I I think that is a very important point. There is a an intersection of holiness in secularism, right? The idea that we can worship knowledge and through knowledge empower ourselves, um, which I think is one of the best best things about humanity. It's not a perfect species by any means, but capable of such beautiful things, and. If you want to look at the the modern museum, by which we mean an institution dedicated to educating the public, then you're going to look at the Amberbach Cabinet. It started as an, a private collection in 1661, and then in like 10 years later, 1671 or so, it opened to the public. This was, as far as we know, the first public museum in the world, and that meant for the first time a common person who couldn't afford schooling, maybe wasn't literate, could still get a chance to see all this cool stuff that was normally reserved for the elites. And then the majority of modern museums, the majority of like the first wave of them happens more in the 1700s. Yeah. Well, you figure out that you you can make a profit by just having cool stuff, right? You you don't have to do mm-hmm. anything with it besides put it behind some glass or you know lock it up to where people could see it from afar but not touch it and people will give you money for that. Oh, okay, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, that's a that's a great business model. And of course, you guys know I have a long-standing plan to create a museum for a time. I think we talked about that a while back. You know, it, it, there's all this talk reminds me, uh, I mean, it's top of mind for me. I just finished it, but the incredible show, uh, station 11 based on the incredible book station 11, which a lot of people love. There's things about the, the show that are different, um, that I think people that have read the book will appreciate and, uh, give them something new to look forward to. But in the story, both in the book and the show, there is something called the museum of civilization. Uh, it's not a spoiler to, to say that this is a show where a massive, uh, 
portion of the Earth's population is wiped out due to a virus that is uh, has a very, very high mortality rate. And in it, there is a, uh, a group of characters that end up kind of creating um, a safe haven in this airport. And they build something called the Museum of Civilization that, you know, uh, highlights things like iPad type things. And, um, you know, over time, they gather these artifacts and display it in the uh, uh, control tower of this airport. Yeah. And what's startling about that is it is a repository. It's meant to maintain a through line from one generation, one era to the next. And from that perspective, I would say that museums are some of the most important of human endeavors. Libraries as well. Libraries are very much like museums. It's no surprise that museums took off when the public could see them, you know, whether it's free, whether it's, you know, a couple couple shillings or whatever, people love this stuff. Here in the U.S., oddly enough, uh, we're very fortunate to have uh, an abundance of museums. Not all of the same quality, yes, admittedly. Uh, but I, I was looking up some stats, and one of the most recent ones I could find was 2017. There's a book called The Museums of the World, and the author, De Gruter Sauer, uh, estimates that this planet is home to around 55,000 museums scattered across 202 different countries. And of those, the U.S. is home to an estimated 33,100 museums. Uh, most of them on Route 66? <laughs> no, I'm sure. <laughs> Get your kicks. I, yeah. Uh, yeah, I know. And, you know, these museums, again, they run the gamut. I have not checked yet. I have not figured out whether or not there's a museum of museums. I just don't know how they would get the exhibits in the door. But but that's not what we're here to talk about today. We just wanted to give you the background because, fellow conspiracy realists, not all museums are created equal. And when we say that, we're not just saying that some are, you know, hokey tourist traps and some are um, amazing scientific institutions. Both are fun. Yes, both are both are wonderful, uh, but there are some museums that you will never get to visit, and it sounds weird, it's strange, but in some cases, their very existence is shrouded in secrecy. So we're going to pause for a word from our sponsor, and we'll dive into this contradiction. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. 
In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's reality podcast. This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of... Rappaport's reality, the reality of bit. us. We're a figuring out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, it, it would have been, Ooh, a, been the podcast would have taken a, a, a left turn. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Here's where it gets crazy. Secret museums. Real thing. But sounds paradoxical, right? Like if you a, a museum is supposed to spread knowledge. So why would you build one and not let people inside? Why would you bother doing this? It, it feels like it, it's surreal, you know? It's like... um. Like, let's say we opened a restaurant and then we said, you know, the number one thing we want our restaurant to be about is not having customers. Don't let them in the door. <laughs> you know, well, I, I guess it depends on what the purpose of the museum is, right? Like, as we said, many museums 
I mean, even if it's not stated, the purpose is to educate someone who absorbs the information about whatever that, you know, the, the subject of that museum is. And I think several of these examples that we've got today are based on educating a very small group of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're targeted towards people who are initiate in a very specific group, a specific club, a specific sect, whatever it might be. Um, first off, we've got the Black Museum in London, which on the surface just sounds like a really cool crime museum. I mean, it sounds like the kind of place I think we'd all love to uh, take a walk around in. Um, but uh, it's not going to happen likely unless we have some kind of inside person that can, uh, you know, get us, um, get us a tour. Someone listening <laughs> yeah. can do it. I know. Yes. You're there. Yeah. Let us know. Um, because a lot of these museums, I love the point, uh, about their specific demographic. Who are they attempting to educate? A lot of these museums do have some kind of off the books ways to get invited. It's kind of like the, uh, the magic castle. In Los Angeles, right? If someone is a member of the organization, wants to have you over, then you can do it. But you can't just run up there as an average Joe. I was super lucky. A buddy of mine, um, a magician that he hired for his son's bar mitzvah is a magician that's a member of the Magic Castle. And I was able to finagle an invite. It was one of the coolest things I've ever done. Like I brought my kid and uh, it was delightful. It's a really, that place in and of itself is a museum. And it's a museum targeted at a very specific demographic, magicians and their friends. Exactly. And that's a good example, too, because this this establishes that that secrecy is not always inherently sinister. But the Black Museum of London, which is currently known as the Crime Museum, uh, we just stuck with Black Museum because it's a way cooler, more ominous name. This museum is pretty old. It was created in 1874 unofficially. Scotland Yard, due to uh, legislation at the time, Scotland Yard was able to collect property from various prisoners. So it became kind of a bragging rights thing. It became kind of just an eccentric collection. Uh, and, you know, it gave you some pride if you worked at Scotland Yard. The uh, law enforcement <laughs> there within London. Uh, Scotland Yard is the headquarters of the Metropolitan Police. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I got to ask, Ben, I mean, you know, we, we know of places in America like the Museum of Death, for example, that have artifacts and things from crime scenes and crime scene photos and serial killer paintings and the like. Where would the artifacts in this secret museum have come from? I guess it would be, you know, from literally the like the repository where they tag and keep evidence. And then once the uh, the case goes to trial and the people are, you know, convicted, then it's fair game. Yeah, it it goes back to something. So we said this starts in 1874, off the books, kind of bragging rights, giving Scotland Yard, giving themselves some attaboys, which were well-earned. Uh, it starts because of something called the Forfeiture Act of 1870. This resulted in the Scotland Yard collection. And the Forfeiture Act actually, uh, let me clarify here, the Forfeiture Act actually abolished the uh, the ability to automatically take people's property and land as a punishment for felonies. Uh, before then, if you were convicted of treason or a felony, you lost everything. It went to the king or it went to the crown, right? And because of the change in that situation, it like abolished that automatic forfeiture. But 
it did say the custody and management of property needs to uh, needs to be run by an administrator. It's kind of vaguely phrased, but it's Scotland Yard gets to keep your stuff and they're supposed to give it back to you when you get out of prison. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's intense. But, but you know, also in that museum, it's, it really is like training, uh, but showing history. Right. So mm -hmm. uh, according to an article from the lineup that was published in 2018, uh, there's things in there and all like the six nooses that were used to hang the last men in the United Kingdom. Uh, things like the, the you're talking about forfeited uh, basically evidence like there's a there's yeah. a fake diamond. There was a there was a really famous attempted heist in November of 2000 and they were they were going in to steal this giant diamond and inside the museum you can find the fake diamond that was actually on display that would have been stolen if the heist had been successful. Really interesting stuff like that, like serial killer stuff too. Yeah, spy stuff too, shotguns that look like umbrellas, these things called death masks. Uh, won't ruin the surprise for you, but Google it or search with your browser of choice. Uh, here's the thing. It becomes official pretty quickly after its inception. In 1875, it is recognized as a museum, the Black Museum of Scotland Yard. But it is private. It is unopened to the public. The only way non-cops could get in is if they were in the middle of a legal proceeding if they were royalty or if they were a very interested celebrity slash VIP today, it's located in the Curtis green building. It's home in new Scotland yard. And if you want to visit, we do have a way you can visit It is a hefty ticket price. All you have to do is join the police force. Just change your career and you can get in the museum. Yeah, it seems like any affiliated branch of law enforcement in all of the United Kingdom um, members qualify to, to check it out. And there's also, there's a movie, um, a classic horror film from 1959 called Horrors of the Black Museum that's a fictionalized uh, version. I mean, I don't know, it's not really intended to be this thing, but the idea of a black museum in general is sort of a larger concept than just the specific location. It's the idea of sort of like a macabre collection of grisly artifacts. And you guys might remember um, one of the episodes, and I think the last season of Black Mirror was called uh, the Black Museum. Yep. And shout out to Black Mirror. Uh, I can't wait to see them do more stuff. But let's say, okay, so we're pitching this idea to you. Let's say that you are a member of the majority of the population of the world who are, in fact, not law enforcement officers in the United Kingdom. And you're like, I want to change my career uh, to go to a museum. What if I don't like it? Uh, then maybe you could travel to Shanghai, Shanghai, and visit the Museum of Propaganda Posters. Heads up, this is a little bit of a fake out, because if you, you will be allowed entry, most likely, you just have to be able to find it. And it's hidden like a secret area in a video game. Yeah, <laughs> like wow. It's, well, the other thing is, uh, well, I've heard, I don't know if this is correct, but I've heard that there are, there is some signage around the area that kind of would lead you to it, but they're like fairly small relative to other signs that you'll see around. And, you know, if you, if you don't speak the language uh, and you may have a problem <laughs> attempting to find it. Yeah, man. Like the uh, funny thing about this is every description makes it sound cartoonishly hard to find uh it's in the basement of an apartment building 
somewhere in the suburbs and there's sparse signage. But if you do get there, you'll get a firsthand look at some top notch chef's kiss propaganda from the first three decades or so of the uh, People's Republic of China, back when Mao Zedong was rising to power and then during the Great Leap Forward, which is its own episode waiting to happen. I I, I have to say, I found a YouTube video of like the inside of somebody kind of going through it with an old potato camera, but it still looks pretty great. And the art on those posters and the style. Oh yeah. Uh, very Ooh. persuasive. I would say it, it portrays a very positive, happy, like it just seems like everything is good here. We're working together and the future looks bright. Oh God. I've got a great book on Chinese propaganda and I've got another one on North Korea propaganda. I can't, you guys would love it. I got to bring it next time we have a book club. <laughs> have we ever had a book club? No, we need I a book just, club. I'm, let's start I'm, one. It, it was never too late. One. Never too late to have a yeah. stuff they don't want you to know book club. Um, you, you know, if you guys are into by you guys, I mean you guys and all of you out there in podcast land are into propaganda posters, and uh, you're also into Disney. Um, there is a non-secret museum that you can, in fact, visit that the mouse uh, himself uh, would probably prefer you didn't. Um, it is called the Disney Family Museum, and it is um, a offshoot of the Walt Disney family, you know, trust, basically. It is unconnected to the Walt Disney Company. Uh, and in it, you'll find things like miniature kind of uh, diorama replicas, or not replicas, the, the initial designs for a lot of the uh, rides at Walt Disney World, or Disneyland, rather, and, like, you know, the uh, first optical printer that um, Ub Iwerks and Walt Disney designed to allow them to, like, you know, stack all these, like, uh, animation cells and create kind of a moving camera effect that Disney sort of um, spearheaded, but what you also find there is a lot of the weird, uh, problematic Disney war propaganda posters and and films um, that the Walt Disney Company would probably prefer that you don't think about. Um, lots of, you know, uh, very problematic images of uh of Asian people, um, Donald Duck, you know, kind of mocking them and things like that. And of course, you know, there's the whole, if the Fuhrer says we is the master race to Kyle right in the Fuhrer's face, all that stuff. Uh, it's interesting. Um, and then there's, there's a good bit of those on display there, these posters and, and, and little film snippets. So if you're into that, highly recommend it. It's in San Francisco uh, in the Presidio area. Fantastic. Yeah. Check it out. I mean, obviously it's not, it's not going to be in Orlando because <laughs> right. I don't think the Reedy Creek Improvement District would be down for that. Nope. And check out that episode. Uh, so we kind of did a fake out with the propaganda poster. That museum is difficult to find, but you're not going to get stonewalled if you do make it to the entrance. Let's go to something else, a piece of good news. Uh, this is the Musée d'Anatomie d'Elmes Orfila Rovia. Uh, my French is terrible. But it is, for a long time, it was this amazing, super exclusive museum in the Rene Descartes University. And this one, I actually tried to enter. I unsuccessfully tried to get in there when I was homeless in Paris. But this place is a legend to anatomy students. It's got uh, thousands and thousands of like animal specimens, skulls, anatomical sculptures, Uh, It's been the collection has been through a lot. At one point, some of those sculptures were burned to provide light. Uh, Yeah, because they're wax, right? 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. And there's a neat, weird, somewhat uh, macabre twist. One of the guys who played a key role in the creation of the collection is part of the exhibit. You can see the preserved brain of Paul Broca. And for years and years, everybody wanted to check this out. Tourists, you know, students from abroad, people in town just visiting. Uh, but the university staunchly refused to allow the public to check out anything about this until something really cool happened in 2011. The collection was donated to the University of Montpellier or Montpellier, and they were way more cool about letting the average person drop by. So good on you, UOM. Yeah, good job. We found several places like this that are not necessarily secret, but they're preserved for, you know, students, let's say of medical sciences and other things where they are somewhat macabre things on display, but they're important for someone who's, you know, deeply studying anatomy, wants to be a surgeon, who wants to understand the human body and how it functions. Uh, you know, it's just, it's almost like, for me, it's almost like there's a desire to just protect these things because some of them really are precious. Like some of the, some of those wax sculptures, as you said, were burned, but they came from a very specific time. They came from a, a very specific understanding of the human body. And, you know, in that moment, what we understood. Um, so like to actually teach someone kind of the history of our understanding over time, I think, I think it's just a price. They're priceless. Some of these things. Yeah. It reminds me of the motor museum in um, Philadelphia, which is part of the college of physicians of Philadelphia. And that was established in 1858 and it is open to the public, but it's also, I think they had something in the charter that allows artists to come in and use it for sketching, you know, uh, for like, you know, models and stuff. And the Quay brothers who are some of my favorite stop motion animators um, did a really, really cool residency kind of film uh, where they animated some of the macabre kind of like, you know, medical devices and, and, uh, and skeletons in uh, the Motor Museum. Yeah, and when we're talking about human remains being commodified or just being used as educational examples, we also get into conspiratorial stuff. Where did the bodies from the bodies exhibit come from? Don't talk about that. Yeah. We don't talk about yeah, that. Yeah, right. <laughs> right, got it. Um, from your good friends at Illumination Global Unlimited. Uh, speaking of, of vast conspiratorial organizations, we can't forget about the CIA museum. I mean, come on. That's that's like day one stuff here. The official position of the CIA museum, which is in Langley, is so weird. Here's the gist. Tell me if this sounds a little off. The CIA claims this museum, quote, supports the agency's operational recruitment and training missions, and it helps visitors better understand the CIA and its contributions to national security. There are thousands of items in this collection from like the days of the OSS, the predecessor of the CIA, to the Cold War, to the war on terrorism. One of the newer exhibits is Osama bin Laden's AK-47. Uh, these are officially held in trust for the public. But unless you are a CIA employee, a higher up in the world of government, or someone with just a lot of juice or suction, as they would say on the wire, you are not getting in. There is something so uniquely CIA about making a museum for the public and not letting the public visit. 
Do you yeah. know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, dude. Uh, also included in that new exhibit w- about the war on terror is a cool little model of Osama bin Laden's compound, or allegedly the compound where he was found, where that AK-47 was located, and the stealth helicopter crash. Um, they don't have that on there, I don't think. Uh, that, that part's omitted, where, the, where their helicopter landed, maybe. Uh, but there's also a, an entire stealth plane that's kind of parked on the outside of the museum. That's a part of the exhibit, but it's also, you know, a giant plane on the grounds. It's kind of hard to that's the one you can, keep people yeah. from looking at it. <laughs> right, right, right. Like that's the reason spy satellites are such a weird thing, right? Cause you can't really hide something like that in the sky, but what are you going to do? You say, I really want to see the CIA museum, but I don't want to work for the CIA. I just want to go there one afternoon what can you do if you're a civilian history buff, tradecraft enthusiast? Uh, we recommend keeping an eye out for their traveling public exhibitions. You'll see them popping up at presidential libraries, uh, you know, places like the Carter Center they have here in Atlanta. Or you'll see them at other, frankly, less shady museums as, tra- as traveling exhibits. Uh, you can also take a virtual tour of the museum a curated virtual tour, mind you, uh, over at CIA.gov. But yeah, man, you're not getting into the actual building. Uh, and that would lead the more cynical of us to assume the real juicy stuff is staying in-house. You know, I don't think that's an unreasonable assumption. I, yeah. It reminds me of, um, I was looking into some stuff and trying to find some other examples of this uh, before we recorded today, of the Vatican. I mean, as we know, like there are a lot of parts of the Vatican and Vatican City that are off limits to people that aren't a member of, you know, the clergy uh, or the Pope's, you know, staff or entourage or whatever. But there actually is a, as an off limits museum in the Vatican. And when we say off limits, that means it's not on the typical tour, but there are ways to, to get a private tour of it. Um, it, it is, uh, uh, has something called the Bramante staircase, which is this incredible, like spiral staircase and the mm-hmm. Nicolina chapel. Um, and it is something that is typically not, uh, open to the public, but if you know the right people or, you know, you know, where to book, you can, get a tour of it uh and also reminds me of the catacombs in paris you can get into part of the catacombs that are open to the public but then there are these just tunnels and tunnels and networks of tunnels that are officially closed to the public and there's even catacombs police that that kind of you know patrol to keep these urban explorers kind of urban spelunkers out of there because there are parts of it that are so dark and so deep and and dank uh people potentially can get lost in there and never find their way out unless they know what they're doing. I think only Opus Day members and uh, <laughs> avant-garde filmmakers, <laughs> yeah. right? They, they like to have uh, underground parties there. Oh, ravers, of course. And uh, yes, we are. We're going to talk a little bit more about some secrecy at the Vatican. Uh, shout out to our earlier episode, uh, which we'll mention in a bit. But I guess this so I didn't think this episode would lead us to this statement, but in defense of the CIA, just being fair, it does make sense to guard this kind of collection pretty closely because if it was open to the public, one of the first things that would happen would be foreign intelligence operatives would be trying to get in to see if there was anything that could help them uh, with their own intelligence endeavors. That's right. 
Yeah. And now they have to, you know, become a double agent. And that's a whole thing. It's like a whole, <laughs> yeah, the paperwork. Oh, it's a real know. pain. Man. Well, <laughs> you got to keep all your stories straight. <laughs> Make yeah. sure you're not telling the wrong thing to the wrong people and all the wigs and, and, and fake mustaches. And, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot and, yeah, to it. All of that just to see the one pigeon with the camera strapped to his chest. Right. Uh, and it might be like you said, a potato camera. And then also, you know, it's so embarrassing if you use the wrong code words, yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, one last thing before we move away from the CIA museum, you can go on YouTube and you could find a video created by Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum. And it's just a short little snippet featuring Robert Byer, who in 2020, at least was the museum director for the CIA there. And this I love this guy. The camera tilts down to him, and he just goes, "Hi, I'm Robert Byer, director of the CIA Museum," and he starts telling you about it in that energy. And the stuff <laughs> in it is so cool. It really is cool because they you get to see examples of what actually is inside there, and it's worth your time. It's only like a minute. Yeah. And also, you know, what's hilarious about that to me is you keep in mind for uh, civilians, this is like an amazing career and quite a dangerous one. And for this guy, it's like Tuesday, yeah. you know, saying, like, yeah, I'm going to direct the CIA. No, he's not. He's not. He's, yeah. Hey, Robert, <laughs> Robert, I really like Bob. He's not. I don't know. He's just low energy. He's not, you know, <laughs> low energy, Bob. <laughs> He's also, you know, he's just chill. You wouldn't, yeah. I, I mean, wouldn't it be more disturbing if he was like twitchy, you know, and he, <laughs> he seemed a little sped up? I would be worried. Yeah. For, for me, it's more like, why are we promoting the CIA museum when nobody can come here and see it? <laughs> like, what are we doing? That? <laughs> Who's the audience for this video? <laughs> Our restaurant is going to be awesome. I can just tell. But uh, at this point, we're going to we're going to pause for a moment and we'll be back to further explore the strange world of secret museums. A new season of Bridgerton is here and with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for the eligible bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. 
my friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's reality podcast. This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of... Rappaport's reality, the reality of bit. us. We're a figuring bit. out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, Ooh. it, it would have been, been the podcast juicy. would have taken a, a, a left turn. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. We've returned. Okay, here's a question that I think occurs to a lot of people when you visit a museum. You see a big, big building, probably with a lot of other ancillary buildings, and they probably have some off-site storage, you know, especially if they're in a really dense city like, um, like New York be a perfect example, then you say, hey, I I heard there was a a collection of Picasso paintings here. Where are they? I already got in the door. I'd like to see this Picasso stuff. And they say, oh, we're not exhibiting those. You're like, why? Isn't that that your job? Why would a museum not want people to see certain things? Why would they not have certain exhibits out there? In some cases, do security concerns, like you can't have just anybody looking at this stuff. That's the CIA museum. In other cases, it's back to the days of cabinets and curiosities. They're private entities, and the decision about who gets to go in is entirely up to the whim of the person who owns the collection. You know what I mean? Bet there's some bonkers private collections around the world owned by some very, very wealthy people. I always think back to 
you know, Nicolas Cage supposedly owned a T-Rex skull, you know, <laughs> no yes. wonder he'll do whatever movie you throw at him. Uh, Michael Jackson, you know, uh, apparently had all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, what did he have? Like the bones of some kind of chimp or something like that. I can't remember. He had an actual chimp, but then he also had some bones. Uh, weird, weird stuff. But yeah, I mean, I, I, it's all in who you know, I guess, right? Yeah, I think that's accurate. There, there's something also along these lines to imagine. This comes to me via some intel I got on club promoters here in Atlanta. The concept of closing down a place for a certain amount of time so that there you're generating demand within that area or that city uh, it like builds up until you reopen it again. And you've maybe changed the exhibit around a little bit, but it's like a brand new experience and you can do it now, but then you close it again. <laughs> Enforced exclusivity. Yeah. It's a big, big deal. And it's, uh, it is being applied on numerous fronts to every human being <laughs> because it, it just works. It's hacking psychology. Uh, this, this does occur in museums. I think that's a very good point, Matt. Uh, but we also need to be clear when we say, even museums you would consider open to the public also hide away various works of art, like legitimate masterpieces. And it's no secret that museums are almost always not showing everything they have at once. Shout out Smithsonian. Uh, but the odds are this is less due to conspiracy and much more due to logistical constraints. Like these works of art, especially the really fragile stuff like paintings that are hundreds and hundreds of years old, they need a lot of TLC. You know, they have to be meticulously maintained at very, very specific temperatures. They have to have people who have trained their entire lives as art restoration experts to come in and figure out how to keep the thing from disintegrating. And second, and this is like a Larry David moment. I was surprised by how common this complaint is. Second, if you hear museum directors and curators talking about why they don't have everything out in the public space, they'll just start complaining that their museum does not physically have the, the space to display its stuff. They're not hiding some revelatory missing books of the Bible, though more on that in a second. Uh, they're prioritizing what they can show off, and then they're closing and they're cycling through their exhibits, just like you said, Matt, to maintain interest, and then they're reopening a new wing, etc. So it's much more bureaucracy and real estate, really. Except for in the case of the Smithsonian's long-standing secret collection of giant bones that we all know I'm is so real. Glad. I'm so glad you said that. <laughs> yes. Yes, the root of the hidden history of giants conspiracy is that the Smithsonian is for some nebulous reason motivated to hide giant bones. They um, made that decision in some weird board meeting and they said, we just, we don't, giants are real, A, and we really don't want people to know. Yeah, we got to collect all these bones. We're going to pay for them. Mm -hmm. Uh, we're just going to collect yeah. them all and hide them away in the basement. Ori yeah, originally the Smithsonian was just a bunch of giant bone hunters and the museum was a front, but the museum did so well, they went legit. You know what That's I mean? That's what happened. It's like, a <laughs> it's like I, I pictured, isn't that the thing that uh, happens sometimes in organized crime? Like organized mm -hmm. criminals will will open a front and then they'll they'll think, actually, we're making more money from being an actual laundromat. 
Yeah. You know? <laughs> and then and then the sausages end up in your local grocery store. <laughs> and don't ask how go. they're made. Don't nope. don't nope. Nope. don't. It's don't gross. Ask. It's gross. <laughs> so this this leads us to another category of museums that are related. These are museums that are technically on paper open. They are open to you. You can go, but you are never going to get there. Uh, or the odds are very much not in your favor. Uh, one of one place that really stands out is um, museums in countries like the DPRK or North Korea. They all have these very um, grandiose names, like the Victorious Fatherland Liberation War Museum in North Korea. Matter of fact, think of every museum in that country. Sure, once you are in the country, your government liaison will gladly take you to several of these museums, will kind of like... Kind of make you? Yeah. (laughs) It goes back to Matt's point earlier in the podcast about how it's all about the intent of the museum. And in countries like this, the intent of the museum is to big up the country and to big up the leadership Mm -hmm. and not to point out the mistakes of the past or anything along those lines. So it absolutely could be a museum of propaganda. I think the argument is very, from the rest of the world, the argument is that those are very much propaganda museums. Uh, but you, you, make a, you make a great point. Um, mistakes don't exist in North Korea, right. by the way, officially. <laughs> it's kind of like, uh, what's that, what, what was that excellent film about, oh, The Death of Stalin? Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. Or they, he literally, I mean, we talk, we've talked about it on the show many times. He yeah. had people erased in that he had them killed, but also then removed from the record, cut out of photographs, like pre-photoshopped out. Yeah, and and you run into a similar surreal situation there. Uh, so yeah, once you're in, you're going to end up having to go to museums, whether you like to or not, because to go in legally, you have to be part of a state-sanctioned tour. But Can you imagine going to that museum, first, though? Seriously. Like, yeah. That oh, sounds amazing think- to me. I think about it a lot, honestly. You know me, man. Mm-hmm. But uh, but to legally enter North Korea, speaking from experience, it's kind of a tall milkshake. So let's say you don't want to possibly risk physical injury. You don't want to spark an international incident. You also don't want to accidentally do something wrong in the country, or you don't want to support the regime. Any of those concerns may dissuade people especially Westerners, from attempting entry into DPRK. There's a slight workaround. It's not the real thing, but it is, uh, it is doable. You can visit from the South Korean or Republic of Korea side of the border, and then there's an entire tourism industry around this. You'll see tunnels. You can crawl through tunnels from the Korean War. You can learn about the fraught history of the peninsula. And if you're lucky, you can visit the DMZ. Uh, Pro tip, the strange propaganda alone is worth the trip. I have, the the gift shops will surprise you. Like I have barbed wire from North Korea. I also have, uh, from my last trip, I have like a bottle of blueberry wine, which I got to show you guys, but I'm, um, I'm still hesitant to drink it. Oh, I think you should just document it. The propaganda is so deep though, that I... I think they may have gotten to me. You know what I mean? Um, (laughs) One side or the other, like there was this rumor, it's unrelated to anything, but there was a rumor for a long time that North Korean uh, beverage and spirit industries were using human urine in the creation of some products. Mm -hmm. 
So, mm. um, blueberry wine, peace <laughs> in there, sweet <laughs> on the vine. Man, if, if you, uh, I know it's a woman that sings that song, but if you um, reframe it and it's a man singing it, it uh, becomes super creepy. Oh yeah. Ooh, I'm, I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to re-listen to that one. Uh, yes. So let's say you're like, all right, North Korea. That's a little intense, you know. Uh, maybe you could try the Bendery Military Museum. Is this the Museum of Bending? <laughs> it's 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 the name of the town. The town's also in a weird place. So this fascinating Eastern European gem uh, has lots of stuff from the Soviet era and the. Reviews are actually pretty nice. It's you, You'll see this one referenced a lot in places like Mental Floss or Atlas Obscura. It's legit. It's in a small town called Bendery, just over the Moldovan border. It's located in a country that does not officially exist. Oh, what's the name of that? Tra- uh, tra- no, maybe I'm wrong. Transnistria. That's the one. Yes. Yeah. But the the official name is the uh, Pridnistrovian Moldavian Republic, uh, and I found we we're very lucky we found this out before we went. You should not say Transnistria to the locals. Oh, okay. It is a Romanian word, and it is a fighting word. Oh, it is. Yeah, like probably like ordering an Irish table. car bomb in Ireland. Probably, yeah. You know what? Real, That's not a bad comparison. Real, real bad. Yeah, it's, Jeez. it's offensive. And I, I'm Sorry sure, you know, <laughs> most people in the world are really friendly, right? Most people. So I'm sure that people might get a pass if they're like, oh, you're just, you don't know what you're talking about. We prefer, most people would just correct you and they wouldn't be like, you have made a powerful enemy, but avoid it. Um, this place, we, and in English, it's totally fine. We're not trying to be offensive when we say Transnistria. Um if you look at the map, it's just this like little sliver of land kind of sandwiched in between the border of Moldova and Ukraine. And if you ask the United Nations, it doesn't exist. This is this is part of Moldova. And uh, if you ask the locals, um, you know, don't don't ask them. Just be cool. Jeez. OK. All right. Uh <laughs> And then, of course, why is it hard to visit this place? Um, well, because of its international status, it's controversial. You know what I mean? Uh, figuring out, like, they don't require a visa for foreigners, but you have to remember you're going into a region that has more than one government saying they own it. Uh, you will probably be followed by local security services, a.k.a. intelligence, if you're a foreigner. Uh, and if you get in a jam, your embassy is not going to be able to help you because you're like, Hey, I'm, I'm in this country and I, I need help. I'm being detained. And they're like, Oh, uh, that country doesn't exist though. E- <laughs> That's not good. Um, <laughs> yeah. Ben, I help, found- help. I'm being <laughs> <Yeah>. oppressed. <laughs> uh, Ben, I found a website called Bendery, B-N-D-E-R-Y dash fortress.com. I don't yeah. know if this is the same thing, but man, it's some fascinating history of the area. Uh, and I would highly recommend checking that out if you have a chance. Yes. Yeah. And this is the stuff that uh, I don't know about you guys, but I love to learn about. Um, and we have one, one kind of downer note and one kind of funny note that we can maybe start to wrap things up with. Um, 
So the downer note is that there are a lot of museums that you will not visit simply because they are in unstable or failed states. One of the most notable tragic examples of this would be some areas of the Middle East and museums in Somalia. Somalia is an ancient land. It's got millennia of history behind it. And just for an example, for some perspective, the first written record of the word Somalia describing this area occurs in a book that was written 3,500 years ago. And this book was a history book. So it was not talking about current affairs. It was like a long time ago, there was this place called Somalia. I got short pants older than 3,500 years, (laughs) buddy. Aren't aren't those just shorts? Yeah. I like to call them short (laughs) pants though. Back when I was in short pants. (laughs) I like that. Uh, so there there's it's it's heartbreaking because there are priceless cultural artifacts there and they are part of the story of humanity's shared past but you're probably never going to visit the National Museum of Somalia uh the country is considered incredibly dangerous for foreigners especially green travelers even though like most places in the world many of the people are amazingly welcome and kind but corruption crime violence terrorism literal piracy are all on the horizon. They're all on the menu. The U.S. State Department and honestly, most Western countries have an across the board ban against any and all travel to Somalia. Like the only reason, according to Uncle Sam, the only reason someone should go there is for a military purpose. There is no like they don't want aid workers there, NGOs even. Uh, They warn against it. Oh, they also say COVID-19. They threw that in. So I think in a sad way, this encapsulates one of the big struggles of humanity. You literally can't put a price on the importance of these artifacts, but most people will never be able to see them in person. And this stuff is occurring across the world in various war zones. And it makes me, you know, it makes me think of the people who are working at these museums, the ones who are keeping it open. You know, despite all the chaos and pandemonium and corruption, it seems like a thankless task to sort of keep the flame of knowledge alive. You know, it reminds me of uh, Foundation, which is a great series by Isaac Asimov. Um, those folks, and I don't think we should say this lightly, they're heroes. You know, they're, they're not action movie heroes, maybe. but No, you're right. You're right. Uh, and I just want to right now say thank you, Robert Byer. For running the CIA museum. <laughs> Thank you, Robert. Listen, man, we're trying to get in there. Any help you can give us, we're big, we're big fans of the CIA museum. So let's touch on like some lighter stuff. So we mentioned earlier, I think, Neil, you mentioned the Vatican. You might be saying, hey guys, where can I see banned books from the Bible? Where can I find that apocrypha? those grimoires, those hidden secrets of this ancient organization. Well, your best bet is probably the secret Vatican archive, which does not mean what you might think it means. And as we established in an earlier episode, getting access to that is even more difficult than getting an invite to the CIA museum. It's such a messed up system. You can ask, you can request to read anything in there, but you have to specifically know what you're asking for. You, there's no browsing, which I think is a very clever strategy on their part. But I found one thing we can end on, 
And uh, so we're not on a wholly depressing note. This gave me a bit of a chuckle. We got to shout out one more museum, the Conspiracy Museum. Did you guys hear about this? There's a consp- there was? No, no, I didn't. Um, I, I mean, I'm, I'm intrigued. Well, I mean, does it have anything to do with the original conspiracy theory? <laughs> it's, uh, it's funny because it was created by uh, a person describing themselves as an assassinologist. It's located in downtown Dallas, mm. right across the street from the Kennedy Memorial. Ah. Uh, and we never got the chance to visit. The reason that none of us can go to this museum is that it closed down at the end of 2006. As much as I think all of us would like the conspiracy museum itself to be the victim of a conspiracy, something they got too close to the truth. Uh, if you do a little digging, the demise is much more mundane. Uh, they lost their lease. And last we heard, the museum was going to be replaced by a Quiznos. Oh, so it's not all a loss. No, Quiznos is not bad. <laughs> but, but laid low, laid low by Big Q. Yeah. You know, the first Big Q, the other one's QAnon. And so since we were all big fans of museums, maybe one great, one of the best ways for us to end this is to talk about some, some of our favorite obscure or weird museums. I'd like to give a shout out, for instance, to the Museum of Jurassic Technology over there in California. Yeah, I've, I've always wanted to go. What's the deal? It, it doesn't, it's, it's not what it sounds like. It is not a dinosaur museum. It's, it's like weird, it's like a weird artsy kind of like museum, right? What's the deal? Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I almost, you know, I'm so pro spoiler, but not everybody is. I, I almost don't want to explain it. I okay. feel like Fair next enough. time we're in California, because we'll, we'll probably all have to go to LA at some point pretty soon. So next time we're there, let's just make a day and go to the museum. It's a Flintstones exhibit, right? Okay, sure. <laughs> I believe it's an El Segundo, right? So if you you need to go back to get your wallet, uh, you can also check out the Museum of Jurassic Technology. Ben, there's another one that you turned me on to recently, maybe because you shared it on Instagram or I think you visited. It's like like an anti-museum kind of or something like that, or it it has like weird computery kind of like, I don't know. Gosh, I'm doing a bad job of describing it. Can you remember what I might be referring is to? It the, it, was it in New York? I think so. I, I, was I, it you, really small? It was small. It was the museum. That's it. Exactly. <laughs> the museum. I follow them on Instagram and it's just like, it's kind of like a weird art project of a museum, right? Like it's, yeah, obscure, nonsensical technology. Um, maybe in the realm of like what Meow Wolf might do with like some of their weird art exhibits. Yeah, man. It's, um, it describes itself as object journalism. So you can find stuff like um, fast, uh, like one exhibit for a while was uh, fast food from countries that have U.S. sanctions on them. So like Iran just has a homegrown version of McDonald's, for instance. Uh, you can also see the DIY improvised um, gear that protesters and activists made to resist things like uh, gas attacks, stuff like that. You know, um, it's, it, it's amazing. I, I I really like that when it is small. It's not a, you're not going to spend the whole day there. It is like one room, but uh, but yeah, that's a, that's a great one. Um, you mentioned the Mutter Museum. That's a great one. I have not been, but I'm a big fan of, of all the imagery I've seen. Next time I'm in Philly, I'm going to make it a point to go. 
Um, like I just said, I just visited the Guggenheim and it's uh, the building alone is worth the price of admission, which for me was free because it was a uh, free museum Saturday. Um, but that's like a really cool, weird Frank Lloyd Wright building. You kind of go around these like balconies that all circle upward. And so you sort of organically experience the, um, the exhibits. Uh, there was a Kandensky exhibit when I was there and he's really neat and I hadn't really seen a whole heck of a lot of his work and it was really, really right up my alley. Um, a museum that I really, really enjoyed that I went to several – gosh, it was when I was in D.C. during the Women's March. Um, the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. Uh, it's fantastic. It has everything from like, you know, the kind of little – uh, microfilms hidden in, you know, uh, pens and things like that and all kinds of weird tools that were used by spies from all around the world. Um, you know, recording devices, um, cars retrofitted with like weird, you know, James Bond type uh, gear and weapons and things like that. Um, lots of really cool interactive exhibits and a really gangbusters gift shop. And also, I always wanted to check out the Museum of Broken Relationships in Croatia. That's my life uh, right there. <laughs> I know, right? Talking about Sonder. Uh, shout out to anyone who recognizes that reference. Uh, yeah, that museum is, uh, it's, a, it's an assemblage of things that people have donated when they have their hearts broken. Uh, so you'll see wedding dresses, handcuffs, letters, all, all kinds of stuff. Um, and then I also wanted to give a shout out to a museum that I, I don't think I'm going to visit unless I happen to be in the area. But if you travel to Reykjavik, Reykjavik, you'll in Iceland, you can visit the phallological museum. It is Penis exactly museum? what it sounds like. Yes. Cool. Yeah. There's also the museum of sex in New York, which is a lot of fun. If you want to see weird old porn <laughs> and stuff and lots of historical sex toys, uh, Matt, what, what are some museums that you're, uh, you're fond of? Um, my favorite is probably the Gabinetto Segreto. Uh, this is a, uh, <laughs> I can't even do it with a straight face. It's a naughty collection of things found in Pompeii, uh, recovered from Pompeii. <laughs> Uh, mostly oh, phall God. phallic imagery and frescoes of, you know, uh, people having intercourse with, you Another know. Another dong museum, basically. Yeah. People are really into that, you know, historically. Uh, Matt, I have to ask you, not, none of us have been to this museum yet, but hopefully we can go one day. Do they have the guy I consider the hero of Pompeii in there? The God? The no, no, no. The hero of Pompeii. This is my mind. I'm arbitrarily voting this guy hero of Pompeii with absolutely no right to do so. No qualifications. Uh, the hero in my mind is uh, the guy who perished during the volcanic eruption at Pompeii. Uh, Mid-coitus? Uh, practicing self-love. Wow. Pranking one. The Got idea it. is like he saw the explosion and he said... I think I've got just enough time to go out with a bang. Um, I'm messing with you guys because I think fa if you fact check that, it's there is a uh, there in the ruins. There is someone who looks like they died that way, but it's probably just a miscaption. Well, you gotta wonder if I mean, surely some couple died in the act of a lovemaking. Sure, it's a big city, you know. Some some people perish doing weird things. It's a weird way to end this episode, you guys. But uh, we, we can talk more 
if you want to learn more about that, it's it's also called the Secret Museum or the Secret Cabinet. Uh, head on over to italymagazine.com. They've got a great, it's a minor write-up on it, but it's got some cool information if you want to learn about it. And we would like to hear from you. What are the strange, unusual, and or obscure museums in your neck of the global woods? Have you been one of the fortunate few people able to enter the, some of the museums we reference today? And if so, what's your take? Uh, and do you know of other museums that are restricted to the public that we didn't get to? Uh, we cannot wait to hear from you. We try to be easy to find online. Catch us on the internet. We are on Facebook. We are on Twitter. We are on YouTube under the handle at Conspiracy Stuff. Check us out on Instagram. We've got some fun things uh, beginning to pop over there uh, in the very near future at the handle Conspiracy Stuff Show. If you're not into the internet of things, uh, just give us a call. You can do that, too. If you're not a fan of the social media, well, put that app down and instead pick up your phone. And use it for its intended purpose. Call one eight three three stdwytk When you call in, give yourself a cool nickname. You've got three minutes to leave a message. Say anything you want to say. Isn't that exciting? You can say anything you want. If you excite us, make us laugh, that's probably the best way to get on one of our listener mail episodes. Or if you've got a great suggestion for an episode, we love those. Please send those our way. Uh, but hey, if you've got too much to say that won't fit in that three minutes, instead, why not send us an email? That's right. We are conspiracy at iHeartRadio.com. Stuff They Don't Want You to Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies 
Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast.